You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them, He has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and, like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey, and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock, and my Redeemer. Hey City on a Hill, good to be with you this Sunday. I'm Nick and today it is my joy to breathe in with you the realities, the truths of Psalm 19. Uh, If you've got your Bibles, join me in Psalm 19 and let's prep our hearts uh, for what God has to say for us today. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you for your word today. We thank you particularly for your word to us in the Psalms. Lord, use Psalm 19 today to challenge us, to convict us, to comfort us, and ultimately to conform us to the image of Jesus. Make Jesus big in this message today. May your voice be stronger than my own. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. 
Well, 2020 has brought a lot of disruption into our lives, hasn't it? And one of the biggest disruptions that I've recognized recently is in the area of communication. Uh, it's been said that some 90% of communication is nonverbal. That is, it's about facial expressions and body language. And particularly in Victoria with our face mask directive, uh, we have all had to become pretty pro at communicating with half of our face covered by a mask. Now, I confess that my resting face is not naturally or particularly warm. Uh, and so I have had to let my eyebrows and my forehead do a lot of the work when I'm at the supermarket and, and kind of communicating with the, the checkout person. I've got to talk with my eyebrows and my forehead. Uh, another challenge has been working out uh, some of the gray areas of the law and communicating around that. In Victoria, we are allowed to go out without a mask if we are running. Uh, but when we start walking, we have to put on our mask. So that leads to some complications. Because when I go for a run, there's that awkward moment when I've technically I've, I've finished my run, but I'm still sucking in the oxygen that if I was to have a mask on it, it kind of wouldn't really work but I'm no longer technically running. And so in order for the people who are walking beside me or, or past me, I've got to kind of communicate to them, hey, I'm not a cold-hearted criminal here. I'm, I've just finished a run. And so I try to communicate to them by kind of, kind of putting my hands on my head or on my hips, kind of like breathing in big and out very loudly, which in a global pandemic isn't at all very reassuring. I've got to do whatever I can to show them that I'm not a criminal. I'm a runner. And thinking about all this just makes me even more puffed out. Now, enter Psalm 19. There is a connection here. Enter Psalm 19 because Psalm 19 is all about how God communicates to the world about himself. If communication between visible and physical human beings is one thing, what of communication from an invisible, immaterial God to his creation? How does God speak to us? Well, Psalm 19 comes along and primes our ears to listen and hear the voice of God. Uh, we're going to walk through this chapter and see three ways that God speaks to us, that God reveals himself to us and to the world. And so if you've got your Bibles or if you're at Bible.com or you've got an app out, please join me in Psalm 19. And we'll start with verse 1 where we hear about God's voice in the cosmos, God's voice in the cosmos. It says this, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. It's rising from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. Now, it is fitting that we are looking at this passage right now, because did you know at this very point in time, three quarters of the way through 2020, we are experiencing a once in every 20 year event. It's not the pandemic. It is that Saturn and Jupiter are visible right now from Earth. And they are slowly converging ever closer in our line of sight together. A couple of weeks ago, I heard about this. And so I took the kids out on one clear night uh, to the backyard. And there they were by the moon. I saw 
Jupiter and I saw Saturn. Now, if I'm honest, they kind of look like every other star in the sky, but I'm told that I saw Jupiter and I saw Saturn without a telescope from the naked eye. Now, it was a little bit of a strain to the eye, so the kids were a little bit distracted by the streetlights that they could see and to them was a little bit more attractive. But as we look out into the night sky, Psalm 19 tells us we should hear something. We should hear the heavens declaring, the sky above proclaiming. Psalm 19 tells us that daytime speaks, nighttime speaks to us. It reveals something. The psalmist is telling us that the cosmos, the universe, is this ever-present message declaring to us continually, revealing to the world something of who God is. I remember reading a study once of uh, some of those uh, TV shows like Planet Earth and Life, some of those TV shows that are uh, narrated or led by uh, David Attenborough and Brian Cox around nature and creation. Uh, and it turned out in this study that uh, some of the participants involved, as they watched nature in all of its glory, those watching those type of shows were more and more inclined toward believing that there was order in the universe and therefore it actually pushed people away from atheistic conclusions and toward theism, toward believing in a creator. Now we should expect that. Creation and the cosmos speak to us of God. When we see planets converging, we don't just see kind of loosely or randomly positioned rocks and gas that are kind of swinging themselves around space at breakneck speeds. No, we actually see through them a creator, one with order and purpose who sets this up. We shouldn't merely think, whoa, science is amazing. We should also think, whoa. The omni-intelligent designer behind all this knows exactly what he's doing. When we strain our eyes to look harder at a, a small little twinkle in the night's sky, we shouldn't think, whoa, that thing is so small. Rather, we should think, whoa, we are so small. And whoa, whoever set this thing up must be really, really big. Last year uh, at Christmas time at City on a Hill in Melbourne's East, we were able to host a Christmas carols service for our local community. Uh, and in those type of events, I had uh, just a few moments to try to land the plane and make a clear presentation of the gospel. And I showed this famous photograph that I'll show to you now. It's called the pale blue dot. Uh, this photograph was taken on Valentine's Day in 1990 by the Voyager. It was taken some 6 billion kilometers from Earth uh, because they wanted to get a wide angle shot of the galaxy and to fit that much of space in the picture, the Voyager needed to take 60 different images and then form a panorama. Now, the picture it sent back slowly over many months became known as the pale blue dot. I don't know how big the device is that you are watching on right now, uh, if you can see it here, but thankfully, uh, one little thing, one little pale blue dot caught in that beam of light that was reflected into the image, that pale blue dot was us, Earth, 0.12 pixels big in the image. And when this image came back, commenting on it, the atheist astronomer and author who helped arrange uh, the Voyager and the picture being taken, Carl Sagan, he said this, look again at that dot. That's here. 
That's home. That's us on it. Everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species live there on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. That's where we are right now. Everything you have and everyone you love on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. And Sagan, as an atheist, provides one way to interpret this picture. We are so small that everything else becomes meaningless. Look how small we are in the scheme of things. Life must be meaningless. We are just a moat of dust suspended on a sunbeam. But there's another way we could respond. Another way that Psalm 19 leads us to respond as we look out into the vastness of the universe. Another way for us to orient ourselves. And that is to acknowledge that, yes, we are really small. But look at how gigantic the universe is. We are in just one corner of billions of galaxies in space. And that reality tells us something. It's telling us that there must be more to life than this. There must be more to life than everything that exists on that pale blue dot. There is something or someone bigger for whom all of this exists. And so Sagan's is a great quote, but it points the speech of the cosmos in the wrong direction. Space isn't there just to tell us about ourselves. It's there to tell us about God that he is big, he is there, he is powerful, he is joyful, and he cares. And things go wrong when we turn the speech of the cosmos in the wrong direction back on ourselves. Atheism is one way where it goes wrong and we conclude that we are all there is. Pantheism is another that's the belief that the universe is so uh, awe-striking that it itself must be God. Astrology might be another where the, the weekly Horoscopes become something that guide our life by, that the stars aligning try to speak into our lives right now. But the stars aren't primarily about whether something awesome is going to happen to us this week. They're about an awesome God whose size, scope, and supremacy screams out to us every night and every day. Take a look at verse 4. It says, Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. And this verse is actually picked up by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament in Romans chapter 10, where he, he takes it even further to say that the voice of God in the cosmos is so clear that Jews, in a sense, they have enough to go on to believe that God himself is actually there. But not just the Jews, because in Romans 1, Paul also says that all people, that to all of us, the invisible attributes of God, his power and his divinity they can be clearly perceived in the things that have been made. And Paul says that all of us, therefore, are without excuse in ignoring God. A very public billboard has been displayed across the night sky every night of our lives. God is on display for us 
The heavens declare the glory of God to every person. The sky above proclaims his handiwork to all of us made in his image. I am here, they say. Seek me. Find me. Trust in me. But the next step in any communication is the response. So how have you responded to what you've heard? How do you respond to what you see out there? Do you respond like Sagan, turning the speech of the heavens into a message about humanity? Have you considered that the vastness of the universe isn't actually at all about us, but we are instead contingent upon the one for whom the cosmos is really all about? And so turn and look up. God bids you to search him out. Seek and you will find. Now, at the end of this section, the psalmist tells us that just as none of us is hidden from the heat of the sun, so too none of us is hidden from the implications of the voice of God screaming out into the world that is directed at us, that we must turn, we must respond. And God is mercifully and patiently waiting for our response, but he will not wait forever. And this leads the psalmist to to kind of turn the screws and, and focus on in more specifically, how God has communicated to humanity. And so secondly, we hear God's voice in his commands. Look with me to verse 7. It says this, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean. Enduring forever, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And so now we hear of the law of God, his commandments to his people. There was a general revelation of creation to all of the world. And there is now a special revelation of God's voice, God's writings of his law and his commandments given to his people. And the psalmist is emphatic that the law of God is good because it is of the Lord. The commandments of God come from the heart of God himself. They are not this detached set of rules, this kind of concrete uh, constitution over here, a binding document that was kind of written just as an instruction manual for his creation. Rather, no, they are God's personal character flowing out of God's personal wisdom to the persons of his creation that he made personally. Wonderful. And we see this in the repetition in these verses, the law of the Lord. The testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the rules of the Lord. They are of the Lord. And just as he is, so are they perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true, and righteous altogether. And so God doesn't just give commandments and and rules just to impose upon us, but rather to reveal himself. They speak of him. They point to him. They reveal him that we might know him and we might walk in his ways. As a good and loving father knows what is good for his children, so God, loving creator and heavenly father, knows what's good for his children. And so the law of David, the law David is, is he singing about, uh, 
refers in his time specifically to the Mosaic covenant or the Mosaic law, the law, the commandments handed down to Moses on Mount Sinai. You might know the story that when God brought uh, Israel out of Egypt through Moses uh, before their wilderness years, he uh, called them his own. He said, I've, I've saved you. I've, I've delivered you. You are now my people. Here's how my people behave. And then he listed the commandments. But David's praise for the law, his response as he thinks about it, seems to me in stark contrast to how we Christians might often conceive of the law. Now, we are very familiar with laws and, and restrictions uh, in 2020, at least particularly uh, if you're in Melbourne or other places around the world that have been in, in stricter restrictions. A lot of them are changing all the time. And the tone of the restrictions, particularly the further they've gone on, uh, is exactly that. They, they feel restrictive. And so when it comes to God's law, many of us actually buy into uh, the original kind of narrative painted by the snake or the serpent in uh, the Garden of Eden. And that is that, that God's just here to impose upon us. God wants to put a curfew on our joy. He wants to put a curfew on our happiness by giving us these laws and commandments and asking us to obey. He wants to restrict us from being truly free. But David here looks at God's law and delights in it. He rejoices. It is refreshing to him. What's going on? What well, brings up this incredibly important point that we who live the, the other side of the coming of Christ need to be clear on. In the 16th century, one of the uh, famous reformers, John Calvin, summarized God's law as having three goals. First, the law existed to be a mirror, that it reflected back to us God's perfect holiness and our utter sinfulness, our falling short. The second was that the law was uh, restraint, that even though the law couldn't change our hearts, it could change behavior. And so the law there helped uh, a civil society function. The righteous were protected from the unrighteous, the just protected from injustice. Not only was it a mirror, a restraint, but number three, importantly, the law is a guide. It tells God's people about the good works that God has planned for his people to do. And so the commands of God function as a family code for the people of God. And now notice what is missing in those three things, a mirror, a restraint, a guide. What's missing is that the law was a way of winning God's love or a way of earning God's salvation. Now, when I was a younger Christian, I used to assume that this was the case. I used to assume that the, the difference between the New Testament Christians and Old Testament uh, Jews or God's people was that Christians are saved by faith. And back then they had to be saved by keeping the law. The problem with that is the New Testament itself, because Paul is at pains to show that that was actually never the case. That is a wrong interpretation of the Old Testament law. I used to think that the law was kind of a, a job description for God's people who wanted to be on his side, that when you ticked off the list of responsibilities as part of that job description, the boss was happy with you. And if you failed, he was very angry. But the law isn't a, a cold and clinical job description. Rather, it is a life-preserving, life-giving doctor's prescription. Not a job description, a doctor's prescription. We come to God by faith, the same faith that Abraham had. And ever since then, everyone who has trusted in God has had to trust like him, put faith like him in God. And having come to him, the law of God then is a gift to us to, to guide us in how to live in such a way that we might protect, establish, confirm, strengthen our faith. 
And in this way, God's commands to us, whether it be the the moral law of the Old Testament, all those commands that are given to us in the New Testament today, they can be for us a joy, keeping us from the dangers of sin, a delight that might be refreshing to us to help us live how we've actually been made and again, obtaining for us a great reward. And so some of the Old Testament laws, like the sacrificial system and the ceremonial laws, we find out in the New Testament that they're done away with. Jesus fulfilled them and they are now put away. There's no need for them anymore. The law that flows from God's moral character and helps us express that character to the world, well, that remains good for us. As Jesus said, he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so we are free from the law as a system of salvation. And yet we are still under the law of Christ as a rule of life. And so where we walk in the footsteps of the character of Jesus, we walk along the path that, like David says, leads to a life of great joy. And so let's press in on this. What is your attitude to the laws of God in the Bible? What is your attitude towards God coming and and instructing us to live a certain way, to do certain things or avoid other things? What is your gut reaction to these kind of words like obedience or, or holiness? Often we examine the commands of Scripture as a kind of depersonalized academic exercise and we assess and, and weigh up the commands or the vision of life that it paints for us and, and we kind of pick this and, and scrap that to try to paint our own life. Will, will, will these commands work for us? Well, we'll take the ones that do and avoid the ones that don't. God's vision of sexuality, God's heart for generosity, the priority of community. We weigh them up and we just kind of take our pick. But God commandments are a personal revelation of the person of God himself. And so our rejection of his word says something of our rejection of him. To ignore his commands is to cup our ears with our hands and no longer listen to what he has to say. As Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so as we compare our response to God's law, God's commands, to David's, we see there's a problem here. There's a difference here. And the difference is where are our hearts at? Notice how passionate David gets as he thinks about God's law. In verse 10 and 11, he, he says, More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. He is rejoicing at the goodness of God's law. See, David sees it as the most valuable thing on earth. Better than going his own way and yet reaching the Forbes rich list or going his own way and being so successful that he's he's dining at the the finest uh, dining establishments in the world. Better than anything is going God's way and being obedient to God's commands as it gives us life. And so the heart of the issue of how we see God's law is is where is our heart at? Is it a good gift from our creator? Or is it just a burden that's boxing us in? What matters most to us in life? That I'll do it my way? Or that we trust that God's way is the best way? Recently, I had a confronting experience with this because my wife, Jules, her grandma passed away a couple of weeks ago. 
And it is uh, always sad to lose uh, anyone, especially uh, a loved one. Uh, and she had um, lived a long life. Uh, and most importantly, she trusted in Jesus. And so even in our grief, there is that great comfort that Jesus makes all the difference. Uh, and so we look forward to seeing her again. And she had lived in her, uh, by her, on her own uh, in an apartment by herself by the beach. And some other family was spread around the world. And so Jules and her brother had become the closest to her for caring for her uh, at this stage of her life. And so upon receiving the hard phone call that she had passed away, a couple of days later, uh, we found ourselves in her apartment having to sort out a lot of the possessions that she had left behind. And it's a very confronting experience walking into someone's place where you've been many times before, but this time for the first time without them and having to go through all of their personal items and kind of sort them into different piles, like a keep pile or a donate pile or a throw away pile. And as we were doing it, I had a thought that hadn't really struck me before. One day, someone's going to do that for me. One day, someone's going to do that for you. One day, some people, perhaps who I'm related to, perhaps and hopefully much younger than me, are going to go through all my stuff. Things that I've saved for and purchased, things I've treasured, things that have meaning to me and personal sentimentality, things that I've valued, things that I have treasured, those earthly things that I've perhaps more often than not attached my heart to, others will just come along and very nonchalantly sort it into piles. Keep, donate, throw away. And this is the issue that Psalm 19 raises for us. What do we value more? The things of this life, the stuff of this age, the riches and the honey that we might be able to enjoy for a fleeting moment? Or do we treasure God's word? Do we treasure God's commands because we hear through them, we see through them to the very source of life, God himself. And so this question, this, this resonates with the psalmist. He, he recognizes this is an issue of his own heart. And so his reflection on hearing God's voice in his commands leads him to reflect on his own heart. Look, with verse 12, look to verse 12 with me. It says this. He turns for a bit of self-reflection. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. This is where God's word leads us to. And there are many mysteries in the world. And the Bible tells us of another mystery. In Jeremiah, it says of the human heart that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And so the psalmist here asks, who can discern his own heart? Who can discern his errors? He knows that he can't read his heart rightly. And so he throws himself on the mercy of God. And he prays, declare me innocent. He knows he needs protection from his own heart. He, he needs cleansing lest he commit uh, presumptuous sins where he kind of just presumes to be in the right and arrogantly dismisses God's word. And so the psalmist knows God's general revelation in the cosmos. He knows and hears the special revelation of God in his commands. 
And David concludes in verse 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And with David's words, he's, he's assessed his own heart and he throws himself upon his only hope. This psalm reveals how God reveals himself to the world. He does it in his creation. He does it in his commandments. But notice here David's final plea, his only hope. He holds on to this revelation that God will be for him a rock and a redeemer. And this leads to my closing point that number third, number three, God's voice in our Christ. God has made himself known in such a way that it is easy to know him. The cosmos screams out day and night. The universe is declaring, it is proclaiming, it is speaking day and night, beckoning us to seek out the creator, seek out God for ourselves. God has made himself known in such a way that it is attractive to know him because God's word, his commands come along and invite us to taste and see of his character, of his goodness, find that he is refreshing and life-giving and a delight. But what gets in the way of anyone searching God out, of anyone finding God, this refreshing is the human heart. And so what David hangs on to is even with his human heart, deceitful and impossible to truly understand its depths, he knows that there is a God whose love and care for him extends deeper still. Just like this psalm, we find out in the New Testament, in the book of John, as it reflects just like this psalm on the early chapters of creation in, in Genesis. Having declared that in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. A few verses later in John chapter one, verse 14, it says this, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And so God hasn't just revealed himself by speaking to the world, but he has revealed himself by entering into the world in Jesus. He has spoken to us, as Hebrews says, he has spoken to us by his son. And so who David knew as his rock and his redeemer here in Psalm 19, we now know as Jesus of Nazareth, the one who would enter into the world, be born into it himself in, in flesh and blood and, and bones, one who would come along our side, live a perfect life, be our rock, sturdy, steadfast and strong for us, and then lay down his life for us in our place, dying gruesomely upon the cross before rising again in glory. This Jesus stands at the center of human history as a megaphone to us, revealing God's character and grace. Come, all who are thirsty. Come, all who are weary and heavy laden. Come, everyone. I will give you rest. Come and believe in him. When we look at the cosmos, the universe, we hear a voice that tells us that we are without excuse. When we look at God's law and his commands, it reveals to us that we fall so far short. 
And so as we recognize the failure in our own hearts, we realize that we have no other hope. We can do nothing else but like David, lean in on a redeemer, one who will save us, one who will free us, one in whom we will find grace upon grace. And so Psalm 19 points us to Jesus. Hear God's voice today. It's calling out to you today. He beckons you. He bids you. He invites you. He calls you. He compels you. Come to Jesus today. Everything God has made in the world and everything God is doing in your life right now is to call you to him. To turn your eyes upward and hear his voice from the universe. To turn your eyes downward and search him out in the scriptures. And to turn your heart and your life to Jesus and find in Jesus one who loves you so much, who cares for you so much and the only one who can live the life you need to live to be reconciled with your creator. In Jesus, we have a hope. We have a rock. We have a redeemer. And so answer God's voice today. A voice that comes through the cosmos, comes through his commands, and for all of us has come in Christ. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, our Lord, we praise you for your work in the world. And especially for your work for us in Jesus. We, you saw the world that you had made. You saw that we are broken and caught in sin, that we fall so far short of your holy law, and yet still you have come to save us. Lord, let the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts confess Christ today. Fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might live lives pleasing to him, trusting in him, living for him. O oh Lord, our rock, and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.